welcome, welcome, and welcome to another episode of The Pivot. I am your host, Samaj McDowell, and I hope everyone is having an amazing, amazing day today. Today, I, w- I wanted to speak a little bit on the understandings and, you know, comprehending the importance as well as the history of civilizations. Usually nowadays that you hear the notions of, um, you know, globalization is, is racing the, the natural quote-unquote borders of these sovereign states in order for the construction of a world government or, you know, a, a means of, through the United Nations, they are seeking to establish some sort of unified global governance system that essentially assimilates all individuals into this one massive global global civilization so that all things are similar. Quite honestly, that'll never happen. And there are many reasons as to why that'll never happen. However, the one word that is very indicative of why that can never happen is civilization. Around the world, for thousands of years, there has always been this underlying transcendental concept of a civilization. And sometimes it's it's thrown around as one of those words that is that's taken for granted. But in order to really understand international relations, international politics, foreign policy, national security and defense, it's very important that you understand as not just a practitioner or a person of academia but just simply as an individual, what it means to be part of a group and to uphold an identity. That that leads me to this concept or the first portion of what it means to be part of a civilization is this notion of it being a cultural entity. It's It's not strictly or inherently naturally political. No, that comes later. It has to be cultural first in order to give rise to the foundations of political institutions. How can I be governed by laws if these laws do not have some sort of attachment of myself to it? If it is not compatible to my identity, and if I do not acknowledge the, the transcendental understanding, the values that's put behind the frameworks of this law because of cultural standings, I'm not going to respect it. I may still follow at the end of the day due to the type of consequences that may follow afterwards. But I may not respect nor view that law as pertaining to me. So that's what we have to understand. That political institutions derive themselves from cultural institutions, and that includes religion, that includes geography, that includes the development stages that tra- that are primarily between becoming a much more centralized state and being a, a simple a tribe that have just settled after being you know, for hundreds of years hunter gatherers. You didn't have to worry about 
the establishment of political institutions as hunter-gatherers because you're always on the move. You, mi- you, you migrated from point A to point B as you followed food, as you followed weather patterns because of the two notions of survival and the pursuit of self-interest. If a civilization cannot necessarily you know, provide for the pursuit of self-interest and survival, it's not going to uphold any value. So then now we move on to, well, what is the importance of civilization? And how exactly did these civilizations interact with one another? Well, for one, a civilization is the utmost generalization of the compilation or the the, the togetherness of a group of people. When we're looking at you know, international politics, a civilization does not have to be just a single country. A civilization can comprise of many countries, and it's based off the notions of shared elements of characteristics and identities. So that could be language, religion, politics, geography. It could be shared enemies, common interests, it could be a common ancestor. All of these elements are what provide the uniqueness to the construction of civilization. And to continue with that, that's what makes civilization so mercurial because states could change, societies can come and go, but civilizations tend to stay the same, especially the ones that have been established here for thousands of years. If you look at the Indus civilization, the Chinese civilization, civilization of Mesopotamia, the Nile River civilization, and then eventually the Greeks and the Romans and the Native Americans, they've all established civilizations in isolation prior to then becoming exposed to other groups of people. The only time that they really crossed with other organizations, other entities, was through war. But as we see, that most of wars and conflicts happen in two types of situations, whether it's inter-civilization or it is on the very boundaries of two civilizations. For example, if we look at currently right now, we see the situation of Myanmar and Bangladesh. You have the borders of two different civilizations, one being Buddhist, another one being Islamic. Now granted, within Myanmar itself, the genocide of the Rohingya Uh, Muslims is due primarily for economic reasons as there are large deposits of jade and other minerals in southern Myanmar that the rather authoritarian and military, although it's not ran by the military anymore, but the military has substantial influences on the political policies. The government seeks to to not only remove 
the Rohingya from the, from the geographical regions of southern Myanmar due to you know, a, a long history, at least since the 1950s, of seeing them as subhuman, as less than ethnically pure Bur uh, Burmese, but also for economic reasons. They did the same thing to the Christians in the north. However, the, the struggle, the tensions, are primarily between these two countries, Myanmar and Bangladesh, is due to the levels of mass migration of Rohingya Muslims pouring into Bangladesh and further straining natural resources that are already um, in complication due to Bangladesh overpopulation, um, neglecting of waste management, and very harsh or difficult climate changes such as monsoons. These notions causes tensions between civilizations. And we see that where now Bangladesh is refusing to bring in more Rohingya Muslims into Bangladesh that are stuck at sea. Therefore, they, most likely they have to go back to Myanmar and potentially face persecution. It's things like that where civilization, the understanding of civilization is so broad that it becomes much more complicated. Because just because you're in the same civilization doesn't mean that you will have the, the same mutual interest all the time. Look at the Greeks, the Greek city-states. They constantly were at war with each other. Constantly. This understanding of civilization, you have to look at it more as an umbrella. But I'm just an umbrella. Look at it as a, a continual evolution. And according to Samuel Huntington in The Clash of Civilizations, there are five or seven, per se, um, different civilizations that should be really examined as they have major influences on the international stage. And the first one, and we're going to go through uh, this for the most part together, um, the first one is the Cynic civilization, or which refers to that of the Chinese civilization. This is one of the most oldest, if not the oldest civilizations in the world. A, a common understanding of China is the notion that it is a quote-unquote a civilization state as it was a state primarily constructed through the establishment of thorough concrete Chinese identity over the past 5,000 plus years. And China as it developed for the most part of its early history it was primarily based between warring states, warring factions, and warring empires and kingdoms. However, through that, China established a very concrete, a very well-established civilization identity. To even the point that when Genghis Khan and the Mongols invaded China, they were not able to overcome the identities of China. They had to assimilate to the tenets, the cultural understandings, the the Confucius identities and the the already established tenets and institutions of 
the Chinese sphere in order to properly conduct their control and implement their authority over the Chinese people. Keeping that into account, the Chinese state is one of the most well-known examples of a cohesive civilization. When you look deep down into the uh, to the uh, the Chinese state, you're looking at a framework of a heavy centralized state, but a very weak rule of law. What I mean by that is that the Chinese emperor, or even Mao Zedong, or Deng Xiaoping, or Xi Jinping, that the the leader of the Chinese civilization was not necessarily restrained by law. And that was done intentionally. And granted, though the bulk of the Chinese civilization was established through a meritocratic type of institution, meaning that in order for you to enter the government, you needed to, to pass a particular type of merit test, which was primarily done to keep the children of the upper class within the realms of government. Very patrimonial. Even through that system, the the understandings of the rule of law was very weak, but the cultural state is extremely stable, extremely concrete. You hear the nation the notions of Han Chinese. That if essentially if you see that now within the Chinese, you know, the People's Republic of China currently, that if you're not Han Chinese, although in their constitution they pre- they preach and promote notions of equality amongst all ethnicities and races within China, that's not the case. As you look at the Uyghurs, is that as they are misplacing the Uyghur Muslims in Western China, they are replacing them with ethnically Han Chinese, but also. The Western Chinese provinces are completely important for the establishment of the One Belt, One Road Initiative. Therefore, in the, to do social engineering, to systematically erase the culture, the identity, and therefore the civilization, the Islamic civilization of the Uyghur Muslims from the history books, you get an artificial, an artificial yet expanded establishment of Han Chinese. And then the Han Chinese that the government does not necessarily want, per se, with inside the continent of China, they send them elsewhere to, to work, essentially. They send them to Africa. They send them to Europe, Central and South America, Canada, across Southeast Asia to Australia, with the notions of essentially doing a social engineering campaign around the world to better elevate their civilization status around the world. That causes conflict with other civilizations, as we see, between the cynic civilization and what's understood as the Western civilization. But I'll get to the Western civilization concept uh, eventually towards the end of the discussion of the different examples of civilizations. 
Outside of the Chinese civilization, which has been directly responsible for things such as paper, which is another example that inventions and innovation is actually a key, a key representation of civilization identity. You know, China established, or at least constructed, the notions of paper, gunpowder, all of that, all of these technologies and innovations that a lot of Western history books tried to credit to Western civilizations when it was actually established by the Chinese or the Indians. And then centuries later, as inventions and technology naturally does, that through trade, through exposure to other civilizations, these types of technologies are innovated once they're brought to other civilizations to be implemented and then eventually be the precursors to further innovations. We see that with the Mysorean rockets of India. The Kingdom of Mysore essentially established one of the first ever notions of rocket artillery. It was used against the British in the third, the fourth Anglo-Mysorean uh, wars, which eventually led to the towards the completion of the subjugation of the Indian subcontinent to Great Britain. Well, what did England do? As they were amazed by these said rockets, they took them back to London, studied them, researched them, figured out their strategic military usages, and then used them in the Napoleonic Wars with better technology. That's how technology also progresses the notions of political geography and the placements of civilizations amongst each other. Outside of the, the cynic civilization, you have the Japanese civilization, which is a very homogenous civilization. Um, they Primarily, they do have some borrowed understandings and identities from the Chinese civilization, um, primarily in the aspects of their alphabet as well as their religion um however they didn't they didn't really emerge until 100 to 400 a.d compared to the chinese civilization that has been around since at least 1500 bc so between 100 and 400 a.d and 1500 bc you can kind of understand that as people migrate, as organizations, organizations as in people, tribes, as they begin to settle and they start to make their transition, then that's when you see the understandings of how political geography, how the environment sculpts and changes the perceptions, which then further molds your identity, which then makes and establishes a culture which then influences the establishment of financial structures and institutions and then eventually political institutions. And then you get into the notions of an established state. Is that, for example, the original kings within Western England, within Western Europe, primarily on uh, the Isles of England, the, the, form, the original kings of these tribes it was completely different from when you think of Napoleon Bonaparte. When you think of, uh, let's see, Charlemagne, 
when you think of Wilhelm. These particular kings were essentially, they were in charge of their particular tribes, but not in the notion that they were above the law. In fact, they protected the law, primarily in the judicial sense. That was the cultural understanding of what it meant, what it meant to be a leader. That these kings of England will go around constantly moving across the Isles of England to exert their authority through the means of judicial hearings. So the disputes that local lords either could not do themselves or simply because the people did not trust the local lords due to corruption, due to bribery, so on and so forth. Through situations like this, as societies change, then civilization, civilizations also too expand and change. The understandings of individualism within Western Europe was supplanted at least around the 8th century, at least prior to the 5th century. It wasn't until the 9th and the 10th century when it started to happen on a very systemic, longer nationwide, not even nationwide, but really regionwide, due to the establishment of the Catholic Church and bringing women into the forefront due to widows owning and acquiring the property inherited from their dead husbands. Due to the understandings of the common law of England, contractual agreements, and things of that, of that, that notion, you start to see the frameworks of Western civilization that we have now that we take for granted because we were born into the civilization. That Right there is a pure example of the demonstration of the importance of civilization towards the establishment of financial, economic, and political institutions that has continued to morph to this very day. Unfortunately, as we see, they're starting to decay on this very day. Back on track, as we leave Japanese, we go to the Hindu civilization, which was actually along the compatibility of the Chinese civilization. China and India, the Cynic and the Hindu civilization, were primarily neck and neck on course of the same means of development, going from hunter gatherers and you know, stationary tribes towards the notions of kingdoms and stratocratic societies. However, the rise of the Brahmanic faiths altered the course of Indian development, where instead of constant war between the tribes, the, st the establishment of empire buildings early on, the Indian course of development altered to where now the, the individual Indian kingdoms essentially was enhanced by the Brahmanic faiths, by the Brahmin class. That became the Indian civilization. That religion dictated the construction of Indian political institutions. While China, it was war, it was chitocracy, it was innovation, it was the suppression of enemy families, the establishment of a meritocratic institution, a bureaucracy, the uplifting 
of an emperor, the establishment of Confucianism that was used to bring much more emphasis to uphold a political apparatus rather than to restrict it. Now, mind you, Confucianism was essentially a political as well as an, a cultural code of law and standard that unified the Chinese civilization state around the, the notions of respecting the elders of the family, respecting the family, respecting the emperor, to know your position in society. And that's when you get into the notions of Neo-Confucianism and legalism and so on and so forth that has continually to mold the Chinese civilization to what it is today. That explains their submission to authority. India, on the other hand, the Brahmanic faiths completely molded to, to a, a certain degree the political institution that we have now in India, which is fully corrupt based off of patronage. A lot of inherent corruption and tribal linkages. It did not destroy the patrimonial states and linkages that had destroyed empires such as the Ottomans, such as the various caliphates, such as a few of the Chinese emperors and dynasties that once patrimonialism takes over the upper echelon frameworks of the political dynasties it is bound to essentially corrode those institutions now granted India did have a, multi a multitude of different empires this is the Gupta Empire but the problem was is that for India due to their civilization and the influences of religion they didn't severely subjugate the kingdoms that they usurped. Hence why that once these Indian empires fell, these individualized kingdoms were turned back to their place. In comparison to the Chinese, they completely destroyed individual families to ensure the full compliance of those people that they've occupied. That demonstrated just from those two comparisons of how India still is dominated by smaller cultural cliques within its civilization, even within the subcontinent. China still has the dominant, singularized, well, singular, <laughs> singular, that's not even a word, singular identity. That's dominated by Chinese. From there, you have the Islamic civilization, which primarily spawned in the 7th century. From there, through the first four caliphates, and what had been considered a major phenomenon, the Islamic world expanded tremendously from the Arabian Peninsula, which is nowadays currently Saudi Arabia, to the Iberian Peninsula, to Turkey, is most importantly spread its influences and its religion, Southeast Asia, to even the Indian subcontinent, even in pockets 
of Sub-Saharan Africa due to trade routes and the, the military armies of African Muslims, of Muslim kings. From there, we have, but even within, the, before I continue, but even within the Islamic civilization, you still have different cultures. Just because that the, the shared civilization identity is Islam does not mean that every culture with un, within that umbrella has to be the same. You have the Turk, you have the Turkic culture, you have Persian, Iranian, you have Malay, you have Indonesian, you have Maghrebi, you have the Mashriq, so on and so forth. Levantine, Egyptian, Sudanese, Eritrean, so on and so forth. You have a variety of cultures that fall within the understanding of Islamic civilization that even today, Islamophobia has no compatibility as not all Muslims are the same. It's like how all individuals under the Hindu civilization are not all the same. The same thing can be said even with the notions of Western civilization. But Western civilization is vastly different and unique for multiple reasons that I'm that I will be getting to momentarily. The next civilization <coughs> excuse me that we'll primarily talk about is the Orthodox. Orthodox civilization is primarily the the Russian per se. Nowadays, it's considered the Russian sphere. Um, but the understandings of Orthodox civilization stems from the collapse of the Roman Empire and the establishment of Byzantium. And then, when Byzantium fell to that of the Turkish invasions of Constantinople. The church, the, the Russian Orthodox Church, inherited that notion of orthodoxy to which where we are today. And because of that, Russia utilizes the Orthodox civilization to achieve its own political grand strategy goals abroad, primarily in the Balkans, as well as in the Baltic and in, in countries such as Ukraine. Using the, the Orthodox Church as a means to invoke domestic instability due, of course, of disinformation in order to hinder the advancements of the European Union as to NATO, but also to exert Russian influences in former Soviet satellite states. That in itself, by utilizing the civilization, the demographics, within the orthodox civilization that's here, Russia is able to essentially reestablish what was formerly the Soviet KGB apparatus, reignite it, and use it to Moscow's own advantage as a means to make up for its lack of military capacity to go against the United States and NATO. You can't defeat asymmetrical warfare and disinformation by conventional means. 
Therefore, Russia utilizes the church, the Eastern Orthodox Church, as part of its overall national defense measures abroad and within Russia for political reasons, for political gain, the continual re-elections of Vladimir Putin to be able to discredit his opponents for the notions of Russian nationalism, making emphasis and notions back to Peter the Great. That's just a pure example of how civilization, the concept of a civilization, can be utilized to the advantage of a state, a strong state at that. You can't combat the the identity of a civilization with a gun. You can't. It's not going to work. Civilizations are permanent. They remain. They evolve. They're fluid. Mercurial. But it's really hard to defeat a civilization in comparison to defeating a country, a state, or the destruction of a society. Whatever the case may be, a civilization is historic. It will remain as identities compatible to that of human nature. And with that, we can move into something that's much more pertinent and much more relatable. And that's the Western civilization, which primarily dated back to the 8th and 9th century. So, AD 7, 700, 800. The Western civilization is rather interesting as Western civilization pertains to Primarily, most countries, for the most part, that have been either directly occupied, heavily influenced, or molded by the former Western European empires. So now today, post-World War II, it's more so transatlantic, so Anglo-American. But the understandings of the Western civilization can incorporate Central and South America based off of the individual notions of what exactly is included within the civilization. That is key. That is important that we have to understand that civilization is very hard to determine. Oh, this is a set definition of a civilization because it's extremely nuanced. You can use geography, you can use topography, you can use language and culture, you can do anthropology, you can do a lot of things. But at the end of the day, it comes down to what is the what is your exact definition of a civilization? Like how, for example, when we look at the different geographical uh, continents, and we're talking about, okay, well, this is North America, this is South America, this is Asia, Europe, so on and so forth. This is the Middle East. Well, to me, me personally, the Middle East is just Western Asia. It's not exactly the Middle East. It is just a continuation of the Asian continent. <clears throat> but the concept of the Middle East was more so a geopolitical notion that was crafted in order to distinguish that the geostrategic notion, uh, the geostrategic location of Saudi Arabia, Iraq. Syria, Lebanon, Iran, Qatar, Bahrain, so on and so forth. It was to a lot of people the middle of the east, to its north yet Eurasia, which would be in a different episode when we talk about the Mackinder uh, geopolitical theory of the heartland. 
which was the precursor to the understandings of classical geopolitics. But back to understanding the West. Out of all the different civilizations that we have, the West is the only one that's really known by a single direction. And it's only primarily because what it refers to is not defined by a particular religion, language, geography, political structure, but primarily due to the understandings of where the origins of the inherited political institution stemmed from, and that was primarily Western Europe. Through this concept of the Western civilization, you also get the understandings of the concept of, of this is Westernization, which is used to primarily discredit uh, American foreign policy within the Eastern Hemisphere, starting from you know, the Middle East and Africa, targeted towards China, Russia, to alter political, uh, economic, cultural institutions, identities, and frameworks against the very inherited historical institutions. For example, the invasion of Iraq in 2003, the invasion of Afghanistan in 2001, the bombings in Pakistan, um, as well as even the Marshall Plan to assist Europe post-World War II to provide an economic and financial stimulus, but under the direction and molding of the United States. That's all that, that that is, primarily. But other than the Western Empire, well not Empire, the Western civilization, within it, you have the notions of individualism. You get the concepts of rule of law. You get those notions of freedom and equality of you are be, you are the possessor of your own happiness. You can acquire private property. But all of this was due to continual cultural and social changes under the frameworks of inherited civilization traits. And the main civilization trait was individualism. And because of the Catholic Church wanting to destroy this patrimonial society of inherited lands, of concubine, or the practices of having concubines, especially for pastors and priests, through the notions of the Catholic Church, through the uplifting of the, the role of the woman, through the return of the Justinian codes, when it came to torts and contracts, property, and proper civil law and uh, punishments. This understandings of individualism became supplanted within Western European societies as pagan tribes, primarily in Germany, began to convert. And over the decades and the centuries after the conversions of Germanic kings, and implementations of Christian society, virtue, laws, and values, individualism flourished, which paved ways 
for capitalism. So in order for capitalism to be his civilization as a whole had to change or at least accept the societal notions of individualism. That was very different from the realms of the of Eastern Orthodoxy, of the Hindu civilization, of the Cynic civilization, even of a Latin American and African civilizations, the Japanese civilization, the Islamic civilization, where there was not necessarily a promotion of individualism. There was more so what's called Cesaropapism, which is essentially the notions of that, that the king, the ruler, dictated the ecclesiastical practices of the religious institutions. And patrimonialism flourished. However, in all of this, as show, as we just stated, that the characteristics of civilizations at the very beginning was very influenced by religious practices. We're talking about primarily Christian Christianity, Islam, Hinduism, and Confucianism. Buddhism isn't necessarily counted, per se, because it didn't really last in the Indian subcontinent once it moved elsewhere to other countries in South, Southeast Asia, and Asia Pacific. It either evaporated or it morphed into something else. Therefore, it's, it's, you know, it's not really counted, per se, as one of the major um, religions. It's a very major religion as far as we're talking about personal enlightenment and reaching your nirvana. But as far as actual molding of civilization identity, it's not one of the top four that we are really going to be concerned about. Civilizations through history grew, adapted primarily once they really started to interact with each other. And that really began around the year 1500. Everything before then, yes, civilizations have interacted with each other. They went to war with each other. Um, they traded with each other. But for the most part, prior to 1500, a lot of the conflicts were confined within the individual civilizations, the civilization umbrellas. That has to definitely be understood that a lot of, for example, in Western civilization, a lot of the wars that happened between countries were part of that particular civilization. Then you start to get into the, the inter-civilization wars when you start to get the Ottomans invading Europe, when you start to get the, the establishment of the caliphates invading the Iberian Peninsula. When you start to get into the Islamic civilization invading the, the Hindu subcontinent. When you started to get the Japanese civilizations invading the Cynic civilizations. Prior to 1500, a lot of the civilizations were rather isolated and separated because they did not have the technology to really communicate, collaborate, to integrate. They traded. And we see records of that since the Roman Empire where you have Roman boats going to currently Sri Lanka or the, the western coast of India or making all the way to the 
to the coasts of China, as well as Chinese boats and making it all the way to East Africa. And then the caravans and the Silk Road and so on and so forth. We get that. We understand that. That's, that's true. But a lot of the motives of civilization comes from internal civilizational conflicts. That is one of what we see actually currently right now. But more so, we see it happening on the notions of fault lines. Growing fault lines. Whether that's within the civilization such as the United States where you have left you have the cultures of left-wing politics or uh, right-wing politics and culture clashing because of the enhanced uh, practices of de-urbanization the notions of the cultural importances of let's say you have a particular culture that's within the city of los angeles or a particular city state and they have a very negative perception of those that work in the farmlands or agrarian agrarian culture. We see a lot of that happening out in the West Coast. We see that now happening under COVID-19 lockdowns, where you have individuals, white Americans, going out to say that this is against essentially their identity, what's known as their freedoms. The quote-unquote we've seen signs of, you know, give me liberty or give me COVID-19. which I mean, I don't personally agree with, but that is the understanding that a lot of conflicts happen within the frameworks of a civilization. From there, that gives us this understanding that it was not until the year 1500 that a lot of these civilizations, such as the Indian, the Mesoamerican, the, the valleys of the Nile civilization, Tigris, Euphrates, Mesopotamia, the Indus, the Yellow River Valley. Um, they didn't interact. They didn't go to war with each other. However, as time went through, civilizations developed, constructed, laws, institutions, identities formed. That's when you started to see conflict. Conflicts emerge with the civilizations when there starts to be a, a growing cleavage between interpretations of laws and cultural identities and representations. That in itself could be catastrophic. When we discuss about the understandings of technological innovations, how that's important for civilization, we brought up the notions of Chinese inventions. Well, the empowerment of civilization is primarily banking on the implementation, the accessibility of technology. Printing was invented in China and ran the 8th century, but didn't arrive to Europe until the 11th century. Paper was established in the 2nd century in China, arrived in Japan in the 7th century, didn't make its way to, uh, to the Central Asian tribes, the kingdoms, empires of the 8th century. Then it made its way to North Africa in the 10th century, entered Europe through Spain in the 12th century, and then arrived in Northern Europe in the 13th century. Gunpowder 
was made in, in the 9th century, so the 800s, made its way through the Ottoman Empire and then reached Europe in the 14th century. That shows you, at least should be an indication, that the survival of civilizations is based upon the advancements of technological development. It is based off of this understanding that the international community is inherently anarchic. And because it is anarchic, I must maximize my security for my own protection to pursue my own self-interest. That being said, it's best to see, okay, well, how is it that one civilization dominates another civilization? And the perfect example of that would be the Western Empire, or the Western civilization. The Western civilization was able to do something that no other civilization was able to do on a large scale. Now that started in the 8th and 9th century. So then we're talking about 700s and 800s. Because of the practices of individualism being present in Western Europe, economic and financial development, and primarily for the institutions, but also their practices, grew from the understandings of social freedom to an extent that innovation through individualism would pave way to better development. Now, granted, they didn't think about that in the 8th century, but because of their already established cultural notions of being an individual rather than a, fam a, a community, rather than being communal, that you are directly responsible for your actions and for every action, you know, there's a consequence. There was this under, underlying notions of being ambitious, of utilizing this individualism as a means to not only enhance my personal, physical position, but also in a way to mold and to propel my culture. That is what essentially happened in, in Western Europe. But prior to that, Western Europe was extremely underdeveloped. Because of the because of that, it needed institutions such as the Catholic Church to institutionalize individualism, contract agreements, bringing back the Justinian uh, codes to better mobilize institutional developments that would later on give rise to capitalism, and then eventually the Renaissance, greater technological advancements such as deep water navigation. The concept of a blue ocean navy to expand maritime trading and maritime military development to be able to leave western europe and to go off to colonize and conquer other civilizations but this came at a price of essentially utilizing the other technologies that they've usurped acquired from other civilizations such as the Islamic empires, primarily 
the Ottomans or the Byzantine, uh, the Byzantine, um, the Byzantine Empire. Um, we go further that, or even the Chinese Empire, he said, with printing and gunpowder and paper. We also look at, well, what does it mean to be part of the Western civilization? Well, that really didn't primarily happen until the end of the 15th century. So we're talking about the 1400s. Once the Moors were officially pushed out of the Iberian Peninsula, which is Spain and Portugal. That also incorporates when Portuguese uh, sailed around uh, Africa to get to Asia, the Asian spice trade, to disrupt the Ottoman uh, monopoly on the trading of spices across the uh, spice road, the, the road in which China was sending silk and on some various spices, especially with India, into Europe. But they had to go through the Ottoman Empire, who implemented high tariffs and export uh, taxes onto well, these import taxes to get through its lands onto uh, goods that were going to Europe. During the same approximately 250 years, starting off with the, in the 15th century, that is when you started to see Western Europe begin to systematically, up until the 1900s, really, to dominate the world and other civilizations. And I'm going to give you a few statistical facts. That Europeans, as well as the former European colonies, including, this includes the Americas, controlled 35% of the Earth's land surface in the year 1800, 16.7% of the Earth's land surface in 1878, 84% of it in 1914. So there's a gradual increase of occupation and ownership of land around the world, infringing upon all the civilizations, which is especially seen now in 21st century politics, even 20th century politics. Look at Gamal Abdel Nasser, the notions of Arab nationalism, to get rid of the Sykes-Picot Agreement, to get rid of the, the established state of Israel, to establish a vibrant Arab Renaissance across the Middle East under his direction. We get a lot of Central, Central American and South American military juntas in the 20th century. Granted, they were employed by people such as the United States. But look at um, Bolivarianism. I guess this notions of being anti-imperialist, which means in his notions that Western civilization is based on the notion of imperialism. To give you more statistics on the size of the Western civilization starting with in the 15th century up until the 19th and 20th century. By 1920, I'm sorry, um, in 1800, the British Empire consisted of 1.5 million square miles and 20 million people. Well, by 1900, the Victorian Empire included 11 million square miles and 390 million people. And granted, that 300, of that 390 million people, about 300 million were the sub, was the subcontinent. But that still, that should give you a statistical, at least understanding of how big 
its understanding of the Western civilization grew due to the systematic colonial apparatus of Western empires such as England, France, Germany to an extent, the Netherlands, Dutch, uh, Belgium, uh, Portugal, Spain, United States. As Europe expanded, the Mesoamerican civilizations became practically extinct. And that accelerated through the American Manifest Destiny. Indian and Islamic civilizations began to be subjugated at the will of the financial interests of Western civilization. Africa, the African civilizations, were subjugated primarily at the coast first because it was seen as, Western Africa was seen as the white man's grave due to the amount of not just diseases, but also that they were not immune to. Uh, they haven't had enough exposure to it, but also because of the type of geographical environment that was present in West Africa. But then once they had better technology and they were able to co effectively begin to combat those particular diseases, then that's when the, in the interior of Africa began to be colonized primarily by the French in West Africa. For essentially 400 years, the European civilization dominated the international community. And because of that domination, they intentionally established what will become international political, economic, and financial institutions to ensure the continuation of their dominance. That is the civilization legacy of the Western Empire. And it's something that we take for granted today. Jeffrey Parker observed that the rise of the West depended upon the exercise of force, upon the fact that the military balance between the Europeans and their adversaries overseas was steadily tilting in favor of the former. The key to the Westerners' success in creating the first truly global empires between 1500 and 1750 depended upon precisely those improvements in the ability to wage war, which have been termed the military revolution. The expansion of the West was so facilitated by the superiority in organization, discipline, and training of its troops, and subsequently by the superior weapons, transport, logistics, and medical services resulting from its leadership in the Industrial Revolution. Western civilization didn't win these wars against other civilizations simply by religious thoughts, political institutions, economic institutions, financial institutions, and won by a systematic overarching military campaign that exploited the military weaknesses of the other civilizations to ensure their own shared dominance in different ways. Some European countries were completely brutal with their occupations Others had a much more systematic approach, such as a marrying into the other civilization and then the new mixed race or mis the mixed ethnic offspring would become the new hierarch, the hierarchs, uh, ruling class of that particular civilization. We see that in Central and South America as well as the Caribbeans and in some cases in Africa with the French.
after the 1500s, the concept of civilization simply just meant Western civilization. International law came from the halls of Western civilized, uh, <laughs> I go Western civilized, Western empires. It came from the Westphalian Treaty. It came from this concept of, quote-unquote, what it meant to be civilized. What expanded that civilization dominance was that these Western countries, because of now their expansive influence around the world, they treated each other much more equally because of similar to the democratic um, the democratic theory that uh, democratic governments or societies will not go to war with each other. And granted, France and England have been at war God knows how long uh, since the first time that they've really started to exploit uh, North America. But it came to the concept and understanding that they both, at least militarily, were around equal footing. It's similar how civilization development prior to 1500 was relatively flat. But then once the Industrial Revolution came, it skyrocketed and it continued to rise. People began to get wealthier. Militaries became more modern. Technology began to continuously not only be innovated, but imported and put to better use. All in all, there's an indication that civilization, there's no such thing as homogeny within a civilization. No such thing. Can be no such thing. There's no one single civilization that is 100% the same. Now, you may say, well, what about the Chinese? What about the Japanese? They are true, truly a homogeneous society, especially in Japan. Sure. But just like the Chinese, the Indians, Western civilization, the beginnings of Japan was the establishment of many different Japanese kingdoms and continual warring for the shogunate. Japan, and because of that, Japan and China have, have had similar developments as well in that capacity that war established and rather accelerated the centralized state. India, religion established eventually the centralized state, but remained the primary influencer and preserver for Indian polities and Indian kingdoms and individualized Indian cultures based on location of the subcontinent. Islam, the, although the, the caliphates and Ottoman Empire expanded from Persia 
and you know Western India to that Iberia Peninsula within those caliphates, substantially different cultures from the Maghrebi in Northern Africa to Mashriq to to the Levantines, so on to at back at that time Babylonians, so on and so forth. To Jews, the Palestinians, to pagans at that time, Christians. Within these civilizations are different pockets of other cultural identities. So what does that have to do now with the 21st century? Civilization, the civilization identity, has crafted some of them the most unstable pockets in geopolitical trends. And it has become a trend that is very dangerous, that has put to risk the destruction of stable political and social institutions. We see now Russia utilizing the Kremlin as well as the Orthodox Church to seep its influences in the Balkans, as well as the Baltics, as well as Ukraine. We see in the Hindu civilization, primarily in the Hindi, in the Indian subcontinent, you have Hindu nationalism killing innocent Muslims at the expense of Narendra Modi. At the same time, you have the established Islamic fault line between the Hindu civilization and Islamic civilization between India and Pakistan that hundreds of thousands of people have died for. You saw in World War II the violent invasion of the Sinic civilization by the Japanese civilization. You see now in Africa the unfoldings of the artificial borders. You see Boko Haram, which was originally a, a Nigerian insurgency, now becoming a Sahel region insurgent terrorism catastrophe. You see now in Libya, that once the Western civilization ousted Muammar Gaddafi, you have now a cesspool of radical Islamic recruitment from Qatar and Hezbollah, from Al-Qaeda, Taliban, Islamic State, Various tribal militias, the Gaddafis under General Haftar, the UN-backed government in Tripoli. You have continual organized crime destroying the capabilities of the rule of law in Central and South America. You have the tri-border area where in between Argentina, Brazil, and Paraguay. That is the direct source of over a hundred billion dollars in black market trading. Civilization has to be respected within international politics. This notion of globalization cannot work. It won't. And the reason why it won't is because of the notions of you cannot erase an identity. The minute you try to erase an identity, it's, it's the very moment that you start to essentially 
it capacitate the natural desires of being self-acknowledged of who you are as a person and the society that you were brought into. Civilization is a powerful force. We see this pushback in the European Union by right-wing nationalists and populists who are proud to say, I am Hungarian, I am Polish, I am Greek, I am Italian, I am an American. You have the Islamic civilization in Turkey clashing with the Greek civilization constantly now. Especially that has increased after the Syrian mass migration through Turkey into, into Europe. When civilizations start to believe that their mere existence is threatened, violence will ensue. And it only takes a, an individual to exploit those notions of the assumptions of mere extinction of who you are as a culture to usurp the power that comes with fear when, it's, when the future of a civilization has now become unknown. You look at the rise of right-wing nationalism in the United States as being the single most threat to national security in the United States. Where now more people die for right-wing nationalism than Islamic terrorism in the United States. This is a natural occurrence. It is a pendulum that has primarily survived the test of time. Societies may die, but civilization remains. And as we see, the 21st century will be a century of, as Samuel Huntington stated, of civilization clashes. These, these solutions can be developed by overall better evaluation acknowledgement of what is comprised in the civilization. And once you determine awareness and you, you know, better understanding of a civilization, the better off we could potentially be. As the international community is purely anarchic, as no one single political entity can oversee all 180 plus countries. Countries will seek to align with those who share common interests, common intrigues, and common enemies. The time of American primacy is fastly declining. It doesn't have to. But the days of the Western civilizations are currently being challenged by the counter-reactions, not just within the civilization, but from other reawakening civilizations as well. This has been The Pivot. I am the host, Samaj McDowell. And I surely look forward to our next off script, not practiced, genuine, authentic 
conversation on the importance of political geography in the 21st century.